0: I'm not going to apologize for the the uh, the length of time that we spent on a mission uh, opportunity because it's it's important and it's necessary. But I'm also not going to cut short the important study today because it's the study of the conversion of Saul, and it turned the history of the church around in this one event. And if there's a favorite event that I have to study in the Bible, there are several, but of all the conversions that we read about, this is the most complete and I guess, you know, one of the uh, great stories, really, of human history, the story of Saul's conversion. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 9. We'll get there in just a moment. I'll give you a little background first. Saul, whose name, as you know, was eventually changed to Paul, was the author of 13 books in the New Testament. He was the, he's the most dominant figure in the book of Acts and the main player, I guess, on the stage of Christianity after Jesus ascends into heaven. The story of his conversion occupies much of the book of Acts. It's repeated three times in the book of Acts. Here in chapter 9, the first 30 verses, and Paul's speech before, before the Jewish crowd in the temple area in Acts chapter 22, and also in Acts chapter 26 in his defense before King Agrippa. Now... What I'm going to do today, I'm going to combine all of those stories to save some time and just add those pieces in that you don't read here in Acts chapter 9. So if you say, I I didn't see that in this chapter. Where did you make that up? I did not make it up, I promise you. It's in either Acts chapter 22 or Acts chapter 26, and I won't refer to all of them every time I add in a piece. So you'll get the full harmony of his uh, conversion today but without turning back and forth between the chapters because of time. This is where the, the the church turned the corner because we moved from just the Jews to the Gentiles. And I thank God we did when we talk about this unique conversion of a unique in, individual. He's, by birth, he was a Jew. By citizenship, he was a Roman. By conviction, he was a Pharisee. By education, he was a Greek. And by grace, he became a Christian. Now, he became a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, an organizer, a visionary, and a great leader to begin the Christian church. Two weeks ago, we met him, though, in a bit different situation. In chapter 7, verse 58, it said that he he stood at at the feet of those who threw the stones and stoned Stephen, and he was consenting, it says, unto his death. We see again in the next chapter, in chapter 8, that in verse In the first verses there of chapter 8, we see that he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. No doubt he was the orchestrator of the execution of Stephen, the first martyr. Let me tell you a little bit about Saul. Where was his home? Anybody know? Tarsus. Tarsus. He was from Tarsus. Tarsus is a city, a major city, was a major city in Asia Minor on the border of Syria and Turkey, South Central Turkey, if you look on the map, we'll have a map, i tell you what, let's go ahead and put the map up, uh, John, that we have, I think it's next, see Tarsus up there at the top in what was called Cilicia that, at that time, and we'll go through here in just a moment and show those, we'll just leave that up. Today, it, uh, is, it would be on the border of Syria and Turkey is where you would find it today, Uh, It was a very distinguished city. It had one of the great universities of that day. Uh, There were three great universities of that day. One was Athens, one was Alexandria in Egypt, and the other was here in, in Tarsus where he grew up. Now, so it was a bustling, cosmopolitan city. His father was a Roman citizen and a Jew, and so he passed on to his son Judaism and Roman citizenship, which Paul refers to later on in many of his letters. No doubt, his father was also a Pharisee, and he took that Pharisaic tradition and gave it to his son. He was very Jewish. Saul was very Jewish, very devout. In Philippians 3, if you remember, he said he was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a very noble tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. So he was very devout. Now as a boy, he was just like all boys at that age, he had to learn a trade. We know what his trade was. Anybody remember what Paul's trade was? Tent maker. What? Tent maker. He was a tent maker and that was common in Tarsus. They take the, the, the black goat hair and to make it into long strips and then weave it into tents. That was his trade that he learned. That was a very popular trade in Tarsus uh, and so he learned that trade as a boy. But about 13, when a Jewish boy, we, it was most likely, when a Jewish boy became a son, according to the law, we know it happened at some point, and this is a likely place, that he was packed off to Jerusalem to study the law under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the leading teacher of the law of that day and, and known as the top scholar. Gamaliel, we've already run across Gamaliel in our study of Acts. He, he was taught uh, He taught Saul. He would spend years memorizing the Old Testament, answering questions, debating of different aspects of the law, learning all of the 600-odd things that a Pharisee had to do every day, get up on the bed on a certain side, put a certain foot down first on the floor, wash your hands in a certain way, and on and on and on. The church, though, began to expand when he was an adult. And actually, it began to explode, and this drove Saul crazy. It made him furious. Can you understand why? He was, in the Jewish tradition of the Pharisees, he believed strongly there's one God, right? That's part of what he had to say every day. Part of what he had to teach his children. There is one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can read it. And he believed fervently that the people called uh, uh, the way had come up with a false prophet. And it was his job to eradicate them from the face of the earth. He said in Acts 26, "...I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth and, I, Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." And just back a chapter in chapter eight, verse three, it said, "But Paul, but Saul began to destroy the church." The word "destroy" was used of a of a wild boar going through a garden and tearing it apart. It was also used of an army advancing through a city and destroying it. So that's what his intent was to do to the church, destroy them. So after successfully clearing Jerusalem. He said, it's time for me to go elsewhere. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, who's the leader, who is the, in effect, in all of uh, Israel, is the top person spiritually and in civil government, really, that the Romans had allowed. So the high priest had all the authority. And they asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So he had heard that a group of them had gone to Damascus. Remember, after Stephen's martyrdom, that they scattered? Well, many of them went to Damascus. Many were there earlier, but many of them found tried to find refuge in this large city of Damascus. So you can see where Jerusalem is here on the map. And they scattered up to Damascus, and that's where he was heading. He was uh, heading to Damascus, which was then called the the Paradise on Earth. you think of Damascus, sometimes you don't think of paradise, but Damascus is actually 60 miles inland from from the sea, it's about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's a six, seven day hard journey, but once you get there, it's a beautiful place, cosmopolitan city, 150,000 population approximately it had a very large jewish communi- community when they had the big slaughter of jews there in 66 AD the historians tell us 20,000 jews were massacred in damascus so very large conclave of jews 30 to 40 synagogues and now we have all these christians fleeing there thinking i'll be safe right now you come to the story and he says i I've got the right to go to Damascus and find anyone there who belonged to, circle in your Bible, the way. The way. That's used six times in the book of Acts. That's how they were known. They were actually making fun of them. They were known as the way. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the what? Way. The way. So they said, and they were called Christians first at Antioch. Before that, though, they were called the way. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, right. Uh, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to, Jer- to Jerusalem. Let me let me go ahead and read verses three to nine, and I want to show you a little depiction of what that might have looked like. It helped me to visualize it. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, excuse me, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. Heard a voice say to him, Saul. "'Saul, why do you persecute me?' "'Who are you, Lord?' Saul asked. "'I am Jesus whom you are persecuting.' "'He replied, "'Now get up, go into the city, "'and you'll be told what to do.' "'The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. "'They heard the sound but did not see anyone. "'Saul got up from the ground, "'but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. "'So they led him by the hand into Damascus.' For three days he was blind and did not eat anything. So let's see what this might have looked like.
1: Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Damascus on his journey. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul. Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. The answer? The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man of all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. (laughs) He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength.
0: So you had, what happened here, you had, of this great conversion, you had contact by God, you had conviction, and then you had his conversion. All of that happens at conversion. You know, none of us have, if you're looking for a conversion that looked like that, nobody has that kind of testimony today, do you? No. There was a reason for that dramatic conversion and that's because he would now take the gospel to the rest of the world outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. There are many manifestations of God in the Old Testament. There's the burning bush where he pre- showed himself as light burning bush. There is the story of, of leading Israel through the wilderness. There is the on Mount Sinai where God revealed himself in light, in bright light uh, in the tabernacle over the Ark of the Covenant where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. But it says here that the light flashed, and if we read the other accounts, we see that it was a lightning type of event and that it outshone the sun because it happened at noontime. And the best I could understand that lightning would be like standing 100 feet from the sun And brightness. So, this dramatic conversion, what does that mean to us? It it helps and it reminds us again that conversion begins with contact by God, it begins not by our chasing after Him, but Him chasing after us. And that's the the story of sovereign, gradual grace that brought Saul to Jesus. So the first thing that has to happen before conversion is God has to draw you. And if you're here today and you say, well, how how does that work for me? If you're here today and you know Jesus as your Savior, it's already happened. (laughs) He's already drawn you. Or you wouldn't have come to it. And if you struggle with, am I saved or am I not saved because I sinned and I did this and and I've fallen away and I spent years maybe without serving Christ and, and, uh, you know, I made a profession as a little child or I did it. Listen, if you're here today and you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's because by grace he drew you nothing of yourself, nothing of yourself. And that's what you have to remember, is that God drew you. God drew me. And I didn't earn it. I can't do anything to lose it because I didn't do anything to gain it. Amen? (laughs) By grace. (coughs) Well, let me go quickly. There was his conversion because his conviction was great. He falls down. You read the other stories. You read the rest of what he says in Galatians. We'll talk about some of that next week. He said, Saul, Jesus said to him, Saul, why why do you persecute me? Did you notice that? Why do you persecute me? Jesus identifies himself with who? His church. And he said, you're persecuting me. It's a sobering thought. And so Saul, under his conviction, he's in the sorrow of his sin, broken before Jesus, blinded. He discovered three things. Jesus was alive, he was a lost sinner, and that he had a special assignment for him. So let's just read the rest of it and then we'll close. So Ananias comes. And he says in verse 11, The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. You know, Straight Street in Damascus is still there. As for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him, restore his sight. And Ananias says, as any good Christian would say in our churches today, Lord, I don't think so. (laughs) I've heard many reports about this man And look what he does, all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all the call on your name. And then verse 17, I'm I'm sorry, verse 15. But the Lord said unto Ananias, now listen to this, Go, for this man is my what? Chosen instrument. He's my, I've already chose him. What grace To proclaim my name, the Gentiles, the kings, and the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 17, in Ananias, he does what he's told to do. He goes to the house and enters it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may, look at these two things, that you may see again, and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Guess what verse I read to our eyeglass team right before we started our ministry? This verse right here. It said, God has led us here to do things, to help people to be able to see again, to help them physically, and then help them spiritually. That's why we are on the mission field. That's why we want to reach people for Jesus Christ. We want to help them physically and spiritually. Now, I got to tell you, when I was uh, in my teens and in a a very, I don't know how else to say it, but a very almost legalistic church, but a church where the pastor uh, was known for pounding the pulpit quite hard and screaming and hollering and telling us that uh, we didn't do certain things, we were in trouble. Uh, Some of you grew up in that kind of church, so you know what I'm talking about. Nothing wrong with that. I I, I got saved there and, and... all that good stuff, but I, I heard a lot about beware of the social gospel. Have You ever heard of that? But the social gospel where if we don't need to be worrying about the physical needs, we just, because their physical needs, they don't get that straightened out. Well, that, that that that's only for this earth. We need to make sure that they're saved, and we need to make sure that they're born again. And I'm sorry you're crippled, but we need to make sure that you're saved. They probably didn't say it that way, but as a teenage boy, that's what I got. I learned differently since then because the Bible sort of teaches something else. And the Bible says that we're the hands and feet of Jesus. And the Bible says that we give a cup of cold water in his name. We're doing it unto him. And this was what we're talking about when we talk about Piedras Negras. We're trying to help them with their physical needs and God forbid that we would do that and walk away and not help them with their spiritual needs. But how can we go and say, Terry, I know you've got a serious physical problem here, but I can't help you. Let's talk about how to come to Christ. I don't think he's going to hear that second part. Do you? All right. Here's the application. Number one. God refines our usable characteristics, uses it for his kingdom. He took, Saul had a lot of usable characteristics. So do you before you were saved. He had leadership ability, strong willpower, self-discipline, motivation, persistence, strong conviction, boldness, practicality, strength. He took those usable characteristics and he used them for God's glory. He replaces the unusable, unusable—easy for me to say—characteristics: hatred, bitterness, anger—and replaces it with love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Number three, transformation makes a dramatic change in your relationships. How's that look? Well, let's take Saul. People he hated, he now loves. People who hated him, now love him. People who loved him now hate him. See what conversion does? It just messes your whole life up. Number four, God can use the most obscure saint. He calls Ananias. He may have been a leader in the church at Damascus. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we don't know anything else about it. Ananias just shows up. God speaks to him. God uses him. Never be afraid to do God's revealed will. God says, do this, go here do it number six i'll close with this which i'm sure you're glad of never underestimate the value of one person brought to christ on april 21st 1855 edward kimball sunday school teacher led one of his boys to christ that boy was dwight l moody who became the most, at that time the most famous evangelist there was. Over what They say over one million people came to Jesus Christ in his campaigns and crusades. He later on influenced a man named J. Wilbur Chapman, who was a great theologian, pastor, preacher. I have books by him. Great man of God. He was instrumental in a man coming, who went to the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago and got saved... And he was instrumental in helping him grow in his ministry. And that guy's name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday became one of the firebrand evangelists that we know from our history. Another man of God. Uh, Billy Sunday and, and uh, was able to help and work with a a man in his ministry named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham was uh, was a great preacher. He would hold tent revivals across the country, and he held one one uh, spot one day, and he gave the invitation. A young teenager came forward and accepted Christ as his Savior, and that young teenager's name was Billy, Billy Graham, who led millions of people to Christ through his ministry. And you really, you trace that back, and you go back to just a Sunday school teacher helping one of his boys in class. So when you sit down with that neighbor or that neighbor's son or that guy at work and you say, this is just one person. What if Edward Kimball said, this is just one person? his Dwight L. Moody. And it's amazing what God can do through one individual. All right, let's pray. Thank you for your grace in contacting us, and drawing us by your Spirit. We thank you that we responded and said yes to Jesus. Thank you for this story that reminds us that it's all of you, not of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.